Welcome to Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. My name is Annette Catalaris. Thanks for joining me. Smokers live on average 10 years less than non-smokers, and every second long-term smoker will die prematurely from a smoking-related disease. Just under one in five adult Australians smoke, unless, of course, you're poor, Indigenous, have a mental illness or have another substance abuse disorder, in which case you're much more likely to smoke. The World Health Organisation expects up to 1 billion preventable tobacco-related deaths in the 21st century. In this podcast, we'll discuss the highly controversial e-cigarettes. Are they just another push by big tobacco or a real and relatively safe solution to nicotine dependence? We'll also look at the traps for novices in prescribing more traditional forms of nicotine replacement therapy. I'm very pleased to welcome Adjunct Associate Professor Renee Batoon, who is the Director of the Smokers Clinic in the South West Sydney Area Health Service and Head of the Smoking Research Program at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Research Institute. Renee is a respiratory physiologist and has worked in smoking cessation for more than 30 years. And she started one of the world's first smokers clinics in Sydney in 1979. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Let's start with e-cigarettes. This product certainly divided the medical and scientific community. In an unusual turn of events, Dr Margaret Chan, the Director-General of the WHO, received two letters that were diametrically opposed. The first was sent in May this year and signed by 53 prominent public health specialists and strongly supported the use of e-cigarettes. The second, signed by 129 equally prominent people, stated the need for caution. Renee, just to start, can you briefly tell us what e-cigarettes are, please? Well, actually, there are two forms of these things and there are multitudes of them. And I strongly suggest if anybody wants to have a look how many there are, go to a website called the Planet of the Vapes. That's an interesting website. It shows you how many hundreds and hundreds of types there are. And they range from having nicotine in them to not having any nicotine in them at all. And so what basically the principle is, is it's an inhaled vapour of a nicotine Uh, The propellant could be um, a glycol type of propellant that actually brings the nicotine deep into your lungs to a point or just a a flavouring that's got no nicotine in it at all. The the product itself might look like a cigarette. It might look like a pen. Uh, It has a battery-operated, usually a battery-operated component to it and basically people inhale from it. Sometimes they light up at one end of them. Now, so the dilemma we've got with with these products are that um, do they work to help smokers quit or not? Are they just a nicotine-containing product that really is the basis of um, a continuation of the addiction? Or do they actually get people off smoking? So where do you sit? Well, I, um, like many of my colleagues, uh, equivocate on the problem. And this, this split between public health groups, vast split, polarising the whole public health community on smoking is that is this the 21st century cigarette and that tobacco companies are behind it full blast or is this a harm reduction strategy that those who can't stop smoking who continue to smoke who die from it um, is this a better option and I sit somewhere um, probably now increasingly more so I would be on the on caution serious caution There is no quality control for any of these products, so we don't know what people are actually inhaling. There's also a very little evidence base on the product as well. 
There's that too. We don't really know which one of these products actually helps anybody and B, will they become dependent on this and is this a consumer issue? So the next thing that happens is people are doing this for the rest of their lives and having to access this. It sort of says to me that we're confusing the political and the clinical arguments. So the political argument partly is, well, the nicotine used in the e-cigarettes comes from big tobacco. So we have such a long history of suspicion of our interaction with big tobacco that it makes us innately cautious. But we also know that, as the four people say, that people smoke for the nicotine but die from the smoke. So clinically we know that nicotine, unless it's in overdose, is a pretty safe drug. And that if you just give them nicotine and remove all the other toxins, it is a harm reduction strategy. It is most definitely a harm reduction strategy, but we've always been suspicious of where the nicotine comes from, from all the nicotine-containing products, I might add. Most people don't ask, where does the nicotine come from, from NRT? Well, of course it comes from the plant. This is not made synthetically. It comes from the plant. So all the NRTs we've ever had... That's the nicotine replacement these therapies. These nicotine replacement therapies are... Um, are a basis of nicotine coming from the tobacco plant, which comes from the tobacco industry. How ironic. <laughs> Always been the case, only nobody sort of stops to ask. But it certainly was a vehicle to help people stop smoking. Whether these e-cigarettes are a vehicle to help people stop smoking is still yet to be answered. So the, the against group talk about e-cigarettes as a gateway back into legitimising the act of and normalising the act of smoking. Is that what, is that what you think well, is going to happen? Basically, you know, the, the concern is um, your, your doctors could be doing it in their surgeries, smoking this product. Does it have any har um, harmful effects on their patients sitting in a room with them? Probably not. So, yeah, it's a serious dilemma. Okay. So... Let's talk a bit about the clinical side of helping people quit smoking. And, and I think it's fair to say that just about every GP in the country has at some stage in their career tried to help somebody quit smoking. And we've had those people that are easy to deal with and we have those people that would try and smoke in the back of the ambulance on the way to coronary care. First of all, how do you pick who's going to, be, who's going to have real troubles quitting? Well, we think, even as you mentioned earlier, that we have actually picked the low-hanging fruit because the prevalence in most communities in, in Australia have, have gone right down. So we think those probably who could have quit have quit. Of course, um, we know now that that might be heritable, that smokers breed smokers, that how you metabolise nicotine, individuals metabolise it differently, uh, some faster than others. Fast metabolisers don't do well on, on pharmacotherapy usually and you need to give them a lot of it. Some would smoke within minutes of opening their eyes in the morning. That's and that's a, a good sign a of good, highly a, addicted... Yes, that's, that's part of what's called the phagostrom dependency questionnaire is that when you wake up in the morning, um, you smoke immediately. It's priority number one simply because you've metabolised the nicotine overnight. And so we know that that's, these are flags. And flags also that people haven't done well. If you haven't done well, you've tried your pharmacotherapies, mm. they haven't done well, this by in itself means that mm. they're, they're highly dependent and need extra care. And so we're now today... Uh, pulling out all the big guns, we give them just about everything we can think of. We we might combine all the therapies that are available, your, your varenicline with your nicotine replacement therapies, with your um, bupropion if required, some anxiolytics if required. We quite literally think this is a life-saving activity. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, this 
behaviour kills people, um, one in two. So this is a dramatic um, effect. So we really need to be much more aggressive in our treatment with smokers. It makes me think, like, imagine trying to get a drug through the TGA where it killed one in two. How are cigarettes still legal? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, of course it's negligent. The whole thing is negligent. <laughs> but it's also negligent not to address this. You did mention heritability. Just how strong is that? It's about 60%. It's more heritable than alcohol dependence, which most people know is highly heritable. Because you don't have to have a parent who smokes. It's your response to nicotine. These are brain, these are neuronal mm-hmm, responses mm-hmm. to nicotine. So you don't have to have a parent, even a parent who smokes. It's just how you respond, your receptors respond, or high, highly sensitive to nicotine. And that's an inherited trait. Okay. And there's racial patterns as well, aren't yes, there? Yes, there are racial patterns. And that's a really a, more a liver function uh, this racial pattern. So how you metabolise nicotine is also related. The faster you metabolise it, the more likely you are to be dependent on it. And the poorer you do using nicotine replacement therapies. People know about metabolising products in their liver. They know about alcohol dehydrogenase. They don't know about a liver enzyme CYP2A6, which is the enzyme that metabolises nicotine. And if you're born uh, the Middle East, say, or the whole Mediterranean rim. Uh, Caucasians are fast metabolizers of nicotine and there's a range of it. So the faster, the poorer you'll do, the more you will actually smoke, the higher the risk of carcinoma of the lung too. So these sort of marry together. Mm -hmm. You've got to smoke a lot if you are a fast metabolizer of it. Uh, the group that's the slowest metabolizer, so this is not a prevalence thing, the slowest metabolizers are are the Japanese. So a lot of them do it, but they don't actually do a lot of it per, mm-hmm. per person. Mm-hmm. They're not smoking big numbers. They don't need to. A few cigarettes will give them blood levels of nicotine that um, you, a Greek, will need a great deal more cigarettes to give you the same blood level of nicotine. Yes, I'm starting to feel sympathy for my father who used to wake up in bed and have his first cigarette. Yeah, that's, <laughs> The that's, first of 60 for the day. We have a saying, you know, smoke like a turk. So in general practice, you, you put the question to them, you know, would you like to give up smoking? And people put forward a whole lot of barriers, like they're worried about the weight gain, they don't feel that they can cope. What are the barriers that they commonly worry about and how would you approach that? Weight gain thing? is a barrier, but it isn't the most essential thing. Most people today will have tried to stop smoking and their experiences have been so awful, they don't even want to go there anymore. I was horrible. I was mean. I was aggro. Everybody hated me throwing cigarettes at me. They have this experience of trying and not doing well. So we actually now today, especially in some of our clinics, we've got very medically compromised people who smoke anyway. Um, we try to a different sort of strategy. That is the strategy of a harm reduction strategy. How about you smoke while you're using NRT? off you go. So we're not actually telling people to stop smoking anymore. This sort of person who's you've tried a thousand times, you've told them and told them. You go through a roundabout way, you say, look, here's this different way. And they've almost never been approached in this way. They've never been given this sort of advice that, for example, it's safer to smoke while you're using an NRT product, say a patch. I prefer a patch simply because compliance is easy. You just put it on. Safer than smoking more yes, is what you mean. than just smoking. Mm-hmm. Or you tell them to cut down, they'll compensate. Smokers will compensate. They'll drag harder. Everybody knows a smoker dragging hard on a cigarette. So instead of saying smoke less or smoke a different brand, a weaker brand, we do not 
do that. Because I used to say, get yourself down to 10 and then go cold yeah, turkey. No. So that's all out of date. Yeah. Yes. We know people compensate. This is called the topography of your smoking, how you smoke. Mm. Dragging mm. hard if you smoke five a day or puffing lightly. If you smoke 50 a day, you mm. can get the same blood level and nicotine mm. out of both those numbers. Mm. So less isn't terribly helpful. But how about a strategy that they almost never offered in the past, a different way of, of viewing it. You put a patch on and you smoke anyway and off you go. And we know that they, the topography of their smoking will change. Mm. We know that they will smoke, they will smoke less, but it's safer this way because they're maintaining some blood level of nicotine in another way. Okay. And we then add more pharmacotherapies to that. Mm. And this has been a tremendously effective strategy for people who are, as you say, um, you know, they've got these barriers. They, I don't want to go there again. I've had a yeah. terrible time. I mean, one thing they often talk about is it's their way of coping with stress and what they don't realise is that the nicotine actually makes them more anxious. Yes, this is called this, a stress paradox. You know, on the one hand, I'm smoking to give myself um, a relief from that distress mm. I've just had. Mm. And then, of course, the nicotine wears off and then you're primed to be more um, agitated or, or more on the edge. Mm. Mm. Something that I don't know if, if, if we're all aware of is the relationship of the metabolism of alcohol and caffeine and other drugs with nicotine. Could you, could you just elaborate on yes, that? Yes. Um, there is a product in smoke. When you smoke, you produce gases and one of them is a a product a compound called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons PAHs and sometimes um, these PAHs will will in fact as you inhale them which you do along with carbon monoxide and nicotine will stimulate the liver and there there are substantial inducers of liver enzymes themselves these PAHs this is if you smoke anything i might add if you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inverted commas, anything you yep. smoke. Um, and that's why what happens is those liver enzymes that are induced by this, these PAHs, and some people might remember this with theophylline mm-hmm. or clozapine. Yes, I do they remember, remember those yeah. relationships with smoking that you need to adjust the dose, usually raise it. Well, that's the same thing what happens with smokers who are drinking coffee. Notorious are smokers, they drink two, three times as much caffeine as a non-smoker for the same blood caffeine levels. To have the same blood alcohol level, they need more alcohol. Insulin, I think. Insulin is affected. Heparin is affected. So your antipsychotics are affected. Painkillers are affected. And if you think about it, most of your smoking clientele, you know, they're notorious Panadol users. Okay. A big... Big caffeine users, Coca-Cola, the other caffeinated drinks, Mm. Red Mm. Bulls, right, and notorious for drinking quantities, big quantities of these things. Mm. Now, what's interesting about this um, is this misassignment. What they think happens is when I stop smoking... I, I get agitated, I get distressed. And I'm, that's because they're continuing their high increase high, of caffeine they're, and they're not metabolising at the same that's rate. Right. They've doubled it mm-hmm. or trebled it. Yeah. So they're caffeine toxic, okay. not nicotine withdrawal, but caffeine toxic. It's very common and it's a misassignment because they say, you see these nicotine patches, I can't sleep at night. All right. Okay, that's very interesting. And what about insulin? Is that a big problem with insulin? It's big enough for us to show, and we've recently had some students looking at this, that um, your blood sugar will go up immediately on on um, smoking a cigarette. Your blood sugar goes up immediately. So when you're measuring blood sugar, you need to know when was the last time that person had a cigarette? Was it outside your door or your surgery? And then they come in the door and you take their blood sugar. Does that matter? It does. Blood sugar decays 
literally decays with nicotine wow. or with a reduction of these, in, mm. these inhaled PAHs. So PAHs are really interesting. The effect of PAHs is very quick. We need to adjust medications accordingly. Okay, so we've talked a lot about nicotine replacement therapy. Tell us, what is, what's the role of varenicline and bupropion and what's the role of combination therapy? Well, we're treating these group of people who've been there and done that with a lot of these medications already. And so what we need to do is consider combining them. And we've seen recently and in our own clinical practices quite a long time ago already, almost since the advent, that if you combine these treatments, um, you'll do better. So we're combining varenicline with nicotine replacement therapies, combining all three nicotine replacement therapies, varenicline and and bupropion, remembering that hydroxybupropion, its substrate is the active ingredient here. And if you don't metabolise it to it, you will not do well on it. So again, don't go down the blame game. The patient's not committed to quit. Yes, they are. They're taking these medications. It's a liver enzyme function. And that's it. You're born with it or you don't. You have it or you don't. Okay, so what you're so, saying is if bupropion's not having an effect, forget it. Don't bother with it again. So the JAMA paper released in June, could you just tell us exactly what that showed? That showed really remarkably good outcomes, more than 60% long-term abstinence, if I can remember the actual number. But we certainly have been able to achieve those sorts of outcomes in very difficult people when we're combining NRT, nicotine replacement therapies, with varenicline. We usually do it in a particular order. We would put people on varenicline first, see what happens, and what happens might be fantastic, that's it, you don't need anything else. Or it could be 50-50, they're doing reasonably well but not entirely. And if they're doing reasonably well but not entirely, you add NRT. And then there are the group of people who don't do well at all. It has no impact. And you'll know that by about three or four weeks. Three or four weeks, not three or four Mm. days. Mm. So it takes a little while. If it's going to work, it's either fantastic or not at all or in between. And if it's the in-between group, we'll add NRT to that. And Bob's your uncle. So varenicline is now your first-line treatment? Yes. Not NRT? Depends. Mm. If somebody's not done well, and keep in mind, I see the intractables, the absolute top top of the wedge, you know, of the people who um, are very difficult. If they've used varenicline before and it hasn't worked, it's not going to now. It's not going to this mm. time either. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm very selective. And we individualise treatments. This is the thing. There's no longer a one-size-fits-all. Due to all these different genetic effects, past history effects, their uh, mental health status, their other drug use and mm. abuse, mm. remembering that smokers smoke other things mm. Mm. Um, and, and we need to factor that in. So what about the GP who, who's gone as far as they can go and they've tried everything? What's the next step? Well, just as everywhere else in the world where the prevalence has gone down, there are increasingly treatment specialists, uh, somewhat like myself and others. We have an association now in Australia, Australia-wide, where there are tobacco treatment specialists, mm-hmm. which sounds a bit uh, over the top, but it's actually not. It's like everything else, alcohol treatment specialists. And um, there's an association called AASCP, the Australian Association of Smoking Cessation Professionals, ASP. And you can look that up and find a specialist near you where you can refer a patient to. And that's easily done. Just gives you an idea of what we're doing. Mm. Of course, it's all evidence-based interventions. Can GPs use that as part of a care plan? Definitely, they can. And 
um, and that's another important part of not sending patients to do anything and everything. Mm. You know, evidence-based interventions, not Fabulous. not your, your treatments that are um, sound good, mm. cost a lot, mm. but in reality um, do nothing for the patient. Thanks for joining me, Renee. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. And thanks for joining me, Annette Catalaris. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Renee Batoon from the University of Sydney. Hope you'll join me for another edition of Observations, podcast from Medical Observer. <laughs>